listening to This Thing We Call Art, a podcast about being in a space and sharing that with an object, a person, an animal, something that is helping you to define time and something that you measure yourself in proportion to. I'm your host, Kelly Lloyd, a visual artist, essayist, and educator currently based in the UK. I've been interviewing people in the arts about their livelihood since 2017, and today you're going to hear a conversation I had on the 3rd of March with Leah Capaldi, who is based in London. The crossover area between the disciplines of sculpture and performance are of particular interest to Leah Capaldi's practice, with echoes of the seminal performance work of the late 1960s and early 70s. She explores the pivotal relationship between object or subject, encouraging the audience to question themselves in relation to the work and playing with notions of surveillance and spectatorship. I was put in touch with Leah by one of her former students who knew I was interested in Acme's Fire Station residency, where Leah was a resident from 2015 to 2020. Leah was kind enough to agree to meet me, and we had coffee one fall day in 2019. Our conversation on the 3rd of March was two and a half hours long, and while I wish I could share it with you in its entirety, today you'll listen to excerpts from it. I'm going to drop you in at the beginning. Well, I suppose that is the thing, isn't it? Like, that people, like, that it, it does just play into these ideas of, of, of artists being sort of um, something which fits really easy into a kind of... Um, commodifiable structure you know that you make the thing for the retail park it's in a nice shade of lilac because that's the shade they're promoting and that thing that you've done as an artist you know fits next to their uh you know wh smith and the shoe shops and all that kind of stuff as well you know it's like a way of, of kind of minimizing and i think ultimately sort of silencing the power of artwork Maybe that's actually what it is with performance art, though. It's always, always been this kind of uh, way to critique the art market, to not make the painting, to not make the object, to make something which is kind of sticky and um, has these kind of strange, movable edges to it, you know? Like, we talk about representations of artists, you know, on TV and stuff, and... I just think that brilliant bit where they try and rip off Marina uh, Abramovich in Sex in the City, you know, and they kind of, and she kind of wanders in, and I wonder if that artist is still there. That's it. Performance artists are always sort of absolutely nuts. They exist outside of like, not I wouldn't say like the rational world, but they there's this kind of like time that you might go and meet somebody for a cup of coffee, or you go to work nine till five. And the performance artist on screen is always the person who's like up late, who's living outside of the kind of, um, like, I suppose, could you call it like the capitalist day or the capitalist hours or something like that? The performance artist is always the total weirdo, you know? And I wonder if that's because what they do doesn't fit into the, you know, the, the systems that nine to five fits within. And it kind of makes me think a lot about where we are now because obviously because of corona, like, nobody's in that nine-to-five system, really, in the same way that they were anymore. Like, time has become, like, bread dough. Do you know what I mean? It's so, like, difficult to grab a hold of now. It's always falling between your fingers and moving and stretching, and it doesn't feel certain anymore. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, maybe it... I'm really keen to, to... think about what happens to performance after corona because you can't 
like I've got a show coming up in um, a couple of months. Like it's playing on my mind every day. I'm thinking, I don't know if I can do the idea that I was, you know, that was due to open like a week before lockdown. I don't think I can do that idea anymore because um, if I make that that work, it's not really going to be relevant because we have such a different kind of interaction with other bodies now. You know, it's quite interesting, all these grants that came out around coronavirus about like, yeah, you're making work about the effect of coronavirus, but then like the effect that coronavirus has had on the arts has a lot to do with also these intangible things that we make work Mm. with like time (laughs) and presence and um, yeah. What, tell me, just tell me more about that. Well, I think it it has opened up a different space that has become available to use in performance, whether it's like live stream performances of, I don't know, from your bedroom or whatever you're doing, but like, I think it's also, there was a piece that I think it was Eva and Franco Matz made a couple of years ago that I saw at a gallery in central London somewhere. And they'd made this this piece of work where you walked in and it was like a virtual space. And I remember thinking, like, what even is this? This is like, I just like yeah okay they're doing this kind of virtual world stuff but like it just felt a bit like frivolous in a funny sort of way and now that is completely plausible and completely valid way of working so it's opened up that whole different idea of of presence presence i've always thought is about being in a space and sharing that with an object, a person, an animal, like something, like something that you, that is helping you like define time and, and you measure yourself in proportion to it. But now like, you know, meeting someone in an online gallery and like virtually viewing work, you're, you're kind of having to time travel all the time between being here and being on your laptop and then being in this other space as well. And that to me is like Star Trek. Do you know what I mean? It's like, that's unbelievable that you can do that. And it stretches time. It's like the bread dough again. It stretches time and it changes. And it's, I don't know, it feels like it has become something else. Which has always been kind of daunting, right? Because time has always been the constant. That's always been the thing that we, you know, can rely on as always being there. And now it's starting to move. I think on a good day, if I had the day just to do my thing, I mean, I think I stare, you know, I stare out into space for like yeah. hours every day, you know? And, and I, at first I was like, why am I not being like in my life, in my way of existing every day? I think like, why am I not being productive? Like, how am I using all of this time? Like I should be reading, I should be whatever, whatever. But then I've just started to try to classify this like staring out in space as like thinking time. Mm. So I think I just kind of leaned into <laughs> this just kind of endless stretch of time. Space wow. is expensive, Jemry, though, isn't it? Because we've moved into a new house. Everything I think about now is about houses. But if you if you've got a lot of space in a house, it's an expensive house because space is, you know, to have spare space is a big thing. And it's kind of the same for your mind in a way, isn't it? Like to have the spare time 
or space to to think about something is that yeah. we're not used to it. I think about that a lot and I what I feel like I'm getting acclimated to habits that I can't afford with that because I feel like especially in cities like alone time is only for rich people and I was thinking about how much I need alone time especially in London when you're just constantly around people all of the time like I find it exhausting I was exhausted just by being with people all day I just needed to live alone but that's not something I can actually afford. Yeah, no, I get that. I totally get that. When I was at the fire station, I learned that it's the first time I'd live with my practice. So I got to I got to have this very intimate relationship with making and I got to value the times where I was just staring out into space thinking of whatever. And that and I got to recognise that as part of what I did, of what I needed to do to kind of get to the next stage and and I don't know if it was just something basic like just doing that in a space which was a studio space as well as you know the space that I slept but it, it definitely like reframed the whole thing for me but then I moved out of there I haven't had a studio space since because I just can't afford it and that has that's really that's like pushed me to the edge that's been the thing which is really like not having that space to we talk about space a lot don't we in art it's like a thing it's a it's like a material isn't it and as well as a kind of concept as well I think but it's I mean I've always had studio spaces but I've never really truly understood how vital they are you know how vital they are for for making like and it's not just about having somewhere to like put your plaster collection or whatever you know it's it's about having the being able to have a space where you can go to and think freely and not feel like you have to put the washing on or you've got to you know, pay the bills or whatever. Like, you've got to have that space where you can allow yourself the time, which might feel quite frivolous whilst you're doing the washing. But if you can, I don't know, give yourself those four hours a day or whatever it is that you're able to do to just be in a studio space. And I've heard a lot of people during the pandemic talking about sort of trying to you know, all the students, I've been trying to do it, trying to set up a studio space in the house, you know, where it's just, um, you know, on the kitchen table or, uh, you know, just the corner of the living room or somewhere like that. And it's, God, like, it's hard. It's really hard to, to like, adjust your mindset in that way, to think, like, right now I'm in my studio space, which is the corner of the room. Like what you learn at art school is is about studio culture. It's it's obviously so vast and so varied, but to to go from that and then to do all these brilliant things which are like about kind of community building in your space that you share with ten other people or four other people or whatever, and then to go from that to, to being 
solo feels like um, isolating isn't quite the right word it just it feels like it quite painful actually I think it's quite like um, bewildering actually perhaps like not to because again so much of like being an artist is making and whether it's physical materials or making videos or whatever it's about having the this the space to make so I suppose that's like heavily heavily um like inter interlaced with like those things about privilege and who ends up becoming an artist you know who can really like follow that route uh, and what support is there for people who don't have family money or you know a shed at the bottom of the garden you know like what what is there I, I've been like so fortunate to have had things like the, the fire station and to have won a couple of awards and stuff which really helped me when I got out of art school like helped me to really like believe actually to like believe in myself as an artist and to know that like somebody else believed in me you know and you have that kind of support I think that's brilliant but um yeah, it's, I get so sad when I hear about this kind of term pop-up practice. What's the term? I don't know it. Right. So it's kind of people who, if you haven't got the money for a studio for 12 months in the year that you might need it, you have a pop-up studio and you have a pop-up practice that is in your pop-up studio. So you get offered a show and you might do the majority of the work at home and then for the past last like two months or something you might rent a studio out um so you've got that kind of two months of studio time and I think I don't know perhaps there are some people that can work like that but I've always thought that it's like an alchemy like making artwork is almost like uh, it sounds so romantic and daft to say this but it's it's almost like mystical you you make this show you have this practice and it's all held together by you. Like you're the glue that puts these materials and ideas together to create a piece of work. And, and it's, it's hard. It's really hard to do that and to do that well and to do that in an interesting way. So I don't really know what I'm getting at here. It's just, I think that space is so important for artists. I mean, I think what you're talking about in terms of studios is really like what it means to be socialized in a studio space, how studio spaces are so much about having a place where you think, not really like you said, where you store your plasters, mm. you know? So I'm also quite interested in, um, because whenever you see an artist in film and television, oh yeah, they introduce them by panning their studios or like panning their exhibition spaces or something like, or panning their living spaces in this way where like you can see their creativity like through their, their like incredibly barren loft or through their yeah. like eclectic you know, like house or whatever. So I'm really interested in like how people also conceive of the studio space yeah. as the site of production, but then how much of the work of artists is, I think, kind of this immaterial work yeah. of like 
you said alchemy of thinking of community building you know of considering materials but not necessarily like always making stuff with them definitely absolutely and I think like I've always had a really weird relationship with the studio like I remember being on my BA and going into a studio every day for for the, for the sculpture course and thinking like what do I do here like what like I lit I couldn't I just couldn't get my head around having because I've never had that in my life before and I've never known anybody who'd had that in their lives before what do I do what is art and how, how do I make art like what is this space for what do you mean it's for thinking and for testing out glues like what's the what do you mean like that doesn't I didn't have any kind of reference point for that at all apart from like I don't know pictures of like Brancusi's studio or you know some of those um like images from um like Lucian Freud's studio and and that's kind of what I thought probably an art studio was it was kind of really like masculine and you know about throwing things about and you know just chucking stuff everywhere and you know a place to be sort of emotional and angry and and definitely a place that I would just be in by myself because that's the only kind of type of studio I'd ever seen on TV but I think that that uh, definitely my understanding of a studio space developed the more I, as I went through that like you learn a lot about community at art school you learn a lot about like the about friends and about how to like the value of a studio space goes beyond what you're making there it's about the the kind of chewiness of it like the um the kind of com camaraderie in a way of knowing that you're all going through something together at that point and then I had a year out where I went to work in a, well, I had to go get some money basically. So I, I worked in a bronze foundry, which was brilliant um, because I learned loads of skills, but I also learned that I absolutely never ever wanted to make people's art for them again, because I, I craved engagement working in a, in a foundry wasn't a studio. It was a production place, which is not what a studio is. A studio isn't about just production. It's about so much more. So then going back and then being at the RCA, I found that really paralyzing for like a good year like that thing about you're saying with Oxford and that kind of stamp like knowing that I was in a, a royal college of art I couldn't it was just so overwhelming and it stopped me from making anything because I was constantly thinking is this good enough to be here is this like what is this is this sculpture at the Royal College of Art am I doing this right like what am I doing and I think I just got real kind of nervous about making anything until I wrote a dissertation and started to understand that there was this long, serious history to my subject matter. And then it kind of felt like, oh, OK, now the studio becomes something else. It's not that place that I'm just going to for like, you know, 12 hours sitting there getting really pissed off that I can't. I mean, you do have those days where you get pissed off that you haven't done anything and you can't think of anything to do. But it also became like a place to generate like a new knowledge about things that I was interested in. And and that's when things started to really change with my practice because I started to, I don't know, it became about like bringing things together rather than the pressure of creating a piece of work. So that, okay, so that's one thing. 
and then we got I graduated and I had this shared studio with some um with some friends above Ridley Road uh the TFC on Ridley Road Market and we had a space up there and there was a bunch of us in there for a couple of years and that worked really well because it was cheap and we could um there would often only be a couple of us in there even though there was like 10 or 15 of us renting it out so that was good because we there was like a a support it was like a sort of community center in a way like you could go in there and know that there would be someone in there for a cup of tea and you could talk to them or you did not talk to them and you needed that support in those first couple of years after graduating yeah and you know and it kind of develops and develops but like it's yeah I don't I don't think your studio can be a laptop. I don't think it's got the flexibility and the potential for, like we rely on technology for so much and we think about phones as being so flexible and so like versatile, but they can't be a studio space. You need, you need much more than that. It's, it's about that thing we were talking about at the beginning with this thing about conversation being about reading reading bodies and reading voices it's about reading objects reading material reading reading the world around you that's that's it isn't it that's kind of what sculpture is it's about knowing how what's well, not it's an element of it like knowing how the world is is made and and feeling so empowered because you are part of that you know it's all really um <laughs> very beautiful <laughs> um and i wonder so yeah, there's this one residency which I um, applied to and then I stopped applying to because the application fee is like $40 and I've stopped applying to things that <laughs> cost that much money. But it's, um, it's Bemis. Have you applied? I haven't applied to them, but I've seen the residency. Yeah, and the studio spaces are just massive. And it's funny because like I don't, yeah, I don't know what I would do with that space, but I want it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but then do you think that that feeds into your idea of artists, like the big loft? Probably, yes. But I also... <laughs> I have this idea of one day I'll magically change back into a painter or like one day I'll start making things, you know? Yeah. And I'll need a lot of space to do it. And... But I mean, so much of my, it's interesting, you said like pop-up practice. Um, I mean, I feel like I had a pop-up practice. So I graduated art school in 2015 and then I just couldn't, like I couldn't afford a studio and I also couldn't afford materials. I got a studio space around the corner from my house and then for like, it was like a desk for like two months. I didn't even use it. I just mm-hmm. used it as the storage space. And then I eventually, I moved into one of the larger rooms in my apartment with um, my friend. And so I was like, I have a desk here. I have enough room here. Like I'm using these studio spaces as just storage space. So I won't have a studio space. So then I didn't have a studio space until I started going on residencies. Um, and, um, and that was the trade-off. It was like, I could either have a larger living space or I could have a studio space. And I always kind of chose a larger living space because I wasn't entirely sure 
what it was like to have an expansive practice anymore because I had dematerialized to kind of, because that's where my art was going, but it also met all of these criteria that I needed it to meet. Like if I dematerialized, I wouldn't need storage. I wouldn't need to buy materials. I wouldn't need a studio space. I wouldn't have to pay for transportation, Mm. kind of like fit my needs. And then at a certain point, when I started to have access to these studio spaces again through residencies, I, I don't know, like I, it's like, I wanted my practice to change to like fit this bigger pond that I was in. But then at that point, you know, I mean, that's, it's the same thing where like, if someone gave me a $30,000 grant only to make work, like separate from my living costs, I wouldn't know what to do with it. I always hope that my practice will change into something that can fill up the space that I'm given occasionally. Mm. But it, it takes time. I think it took like a good month just to kind of get like all the materials I needed and to put them in the right place and to develop some kind of a schedule getting to the studio. And so not only is there like this runway for getting my studio in order there's also like this runway for learning how to work with physical stuff again Mm. yeah because it's been a long time for you as well though right like it's been a long time since you've had your hands on stuff yeah exactly yeah it takes a while (laughs) takes a while it does and then also like it takes a while to to stop making the work that you think you should be Because there is this weight of like, I have this body of work in me that I'm not making. And as soon as I get into the studio, I'll be able to make it. Or as soon Mm. as I get money, I'll be able to make it. Or like, as soon as I have time or, or like one day I'll really just get to the bottom of my practice or I'll, you know, really figure out what I want to do. Or like, you know, there's this fictional clarity. There's this like fictional ideal body of work. I totally understand where you're coming from with that. I so understand. It's like, but again, like that really relates back to this idea of like the, the, the like artist on screen, doesn't it? Like something which we can kind of like commodify and, and understand and measure and, and all that kind of stuff. But like, yeah, I completely, yeah, you have that kind of yearning for like the time when you can just sit down and like do a, a line on the wall and feel like that's perfect and you don't need to do any more because you've reached this like zenith in your practice where I absolutely understand everything. You know, I get it. I'm totally present in the, in the world, in my work, you know? And I think that that's... You have like ebbs and flows, don't you? You have points where you feel like you're getting towards that and then you have other points where you're just like, you're in the trough of despair and thinking like, I have no idea who I am or what I'm making. Like, what is this? Like, am I just making the same work over and over? But, but yeah, like I get that a hundred percent. I totally understand what you're saying. And that's the battle. But I think that you can overcome that by, by making, like you have to make your way through that. And often the fantasy is all the time that you don't have the facilities to make it. And then when you have the facilities, you start arranging your stuff, you start collecting materials. 
And then you have this other doubt that comes in, which is like, oh, am I going to live up to my expectations of myself now? And you start making stuff and thinking, God, this is shit. Like, what? <laughs> this isn't what I thought I should be making right now. Like, <laughs> And then you kind of ease into it. You've got to get, get over these like humps, but they keep on coming back again. And I think the thing that brings you back is having a bit of confidence in what you do because when you see the stuff that you are making when you see when it works and you feel genuinely excited by by these things coming together like that's that's like like my mouth is literally watering talking to you about that moment because that's the best bit I think like that's the best bit when you're like I'm fictionalizing it now like <laughs> when you're like you're just in it you're like living the dream because you you feel really satisfied by your practice you know and sustained by it when does the best bit happen two times i get the best bit twice so i get the the best bit is like when i've made the work and i've installed it and that moment just before private view when i've had all these really intense like conversations with the curator or I'm working with the gallery really, really intensively. And we've probably remade the show like 15 times. And and then this kind of moment happens where it's like just about to open. And you kind of walk in and you see it fresh. You see it with all the space. You see it with the anticipation of what it is. You see it clearly because it's separate from you. And I love that. I absolutely love that because it's you recognise something in yourself and you recognise this other this other other thing that you've made. It's that's incredible. So it's like being able to recognise it because it's out of the studio. But then like this other thing that happens in making where time leaves you. You don't have time. Like it's there's like new stuff that you're developing, new stuff that you're learning about how things come together how ideas and materials come together and and it's like you recognize yourself and you recognize your interests you you made like 10 things in one day and maybe you'll only like one of them but you recognize it and that clarity of like the recognition of your work I love that bit I love like recognizing what I'm interested in and being really like delighted and really sort of um, satisfied by it, you know, really kind of like, oh, like literally like it fills me, you know, and it makes me feel excited for the next day and thinking I'm going to pick that up again. Like I'm going to re-edit that thing again because now I know that the shape of it has changed slightly. I'm going to work with that silicon again or something, you know, like there's that, it's a new knowledge. It's the only way I can really describe it, like a new knowledge of how things work. Like those are the two best bits, in my opinion, about art, like about making specifically, is that the discovery and then the the recognition. I feel like we're talking about such salacious stuff. Oh my god, yeah, it feels really like erotic, <laughs> doesn't it? Like it's but yeah, I feel like I've had these like longing conversations with people. Mm. And I like them because they make art seem like because whenever I think about how fucked up the art world is or like how 
no one's ever going to pay me any money to do anything or how I'm never going to get anywhere. Like the thing that brings me back are these, these best bits. Mm. And, and I feel really very lucky to have been able to experience them often enough. And to, like you said, been supported by people at crucial points in my career or like, as I grew up, um, that I have been able to experience those best bits and experience them with other people and experience them in public and experience them with no one giving a shit about it and experience them when other people give a shit about it or like so it is it can be like this constant Mm. you know which Mm. is like at the heart of you know what my career is I guess or what my profession is but also it's that kind of moment then when you realize that art isn't an output it's it is a moment it's an engagement with something like that's i think that's quite freeing and also completely terrifying at the same time because you know the edges fall away from it then which is great but like that could be something that we're that in this time we can take a bit of um, comfort in that, like knowing that it's it's not all studio. Like it's, it is about how we go out and negotiate with the world around us, and um, and yeah, that's that. The, there aren't so many. I want to say like there aren't so many like barriers to that or something, but that's not quite true. Like there are. <laughs> like perhaps with who you get to have those conversations with as well, you know? Um, Oh God, I don't know, Kelly. I just don't know. Like, (laughs) I feel quite sad talking about it because it's making me long and really miss it, you know? But that's okay. It's not going to be like this for much longer. But Um, that's what is also gorgeous to have this conversation. Like I I feel really um, excited by it and really... Mm, I'm really like giving me something to kind of get my teeth into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe let's move off of <laughs> of this <laughs> this like moment of longing for a second. Um, so we've had a lot of conversations about housing because I met you and you were graciously <laughs> willing to like um, talk to me about the fire station and. I don't know if I, um, I mean, A, thank you for that. It's really lovely to know you. Um, Pleasure. um, Thank you for like, you know, being willing to talk to me Um, then and now. When you got this opportunity, were you hanging things on it? Like, do you feel like you were able to, you know, take better care of yourself and your practice and your larger community through it? Or like, what was, yeah, what was it like? It's a funny one, you know, Kelly. Like, having now had this year away from it, I can honestly say to you, when we... Well, I was living there with Al, my partner. Um, so it was the two of us in a very, very, very small space. But um, it was designed for one. So when we... When I got it, it was... We were living in a really crappy situation. Like, we were living in a place in Telegraph Hill, New Cross... And there was rust coming out of the taps. 
the boiler had been banging for like three weeks and I've told the estate agent about it every day for three weeks and they hadn't done anything and then one day I woke up to the front of the boiler actually like being thrown across the room as it died it was it was like it was like what the hell is going on here and we were paying like 1200 pounds for that place and that was I mean that was like I worked two days a week as a lecturer you know that's not a lot of money (laughs) (laughs) so um so it was just like what the fuck is going on here and we were at the point where I was saying look I can't afford this money anymore I can't afford this I cannot afford to stay here in this flat with rust coming out the taps that feels unsafe you know and I might die of bloody carbon monoxide poisoning or something so um I said to so I applied for it thinking this could be the way that I can stay in London and then with the rent as it was I think it was about 400 pounds a month or maybe a bit more, maybe like 450 or 500. I can't quite remember a few years ago. It did go up every couple of years. But um, uh, we thought, well, we could move in there and then we can live. First of all, we can live. We can afford to stay in London. I can. I don't have to pay for a studio space, so that will save me some money. And um, And also we can save for the future as well, like, we can try and build a future from being there. And that in turn will make my practice better. Um, So I think I wanted security. I wanted knowing that I was going to be there for five years and I wanted to be part of a community of artists again. I'd missed that so, so much. It was quite different to how I thought it would be in that sense. Like I didn't think it would be like halls or anything, but I did think it was going to be... um, perhaps a little bit more like we ended up it wasn't like enforced community so it was quite loose you know there were still people who by the end of the five years I didn't really know very well there um so but then I'd I'd made some fantastic friends being there as well so it swings and roundabouts but I, I got that from it definitely got that kind of like we're we're at a similar point in our practices and we're supporting each other through that. That was great. Um, the the thing though was that was quite. It was difficult living on the A12. You know, one of the bloody biggest A roads in Europe. That was difficult living there. And I suppose we changed a lot because you have to put everything on hold for five years. You know, unless you want to leave early. Which, in if you do, then what's the point in being there for five years? You know, so. So we had to basically just kind of put our lives on hold for five years. Um, And we, as a couple, we discussed that and said, you know, like, this is time which can help us to achieve much more in future. Either we do that or we end up moving to, I don't know, like Slough or somewhere, you know, to try and save. And this seems like a better way forward. So we got, so that was why I'd applied for it. And then I got it. And that was great. And it was really good to be able to bring curators and friends and and people there. I'd never really been able to do that before. Like I had a studio space before that, but it was always like so cold that I remember I was getting carpal tunnel in my hands and my thumbs would go black with the cold. Like they would change colour from these freezing cold studio spaces. 
so and they were expensive so expensive and you just can't afford that so um so yeah it really gave me a bit of breathing space actually that's the thing i really valued from it and the community and also with the breathing space comes time to focus on my work which i had i had time for the first time ever i'd had i had time to sit down and be around it and like listen to it you know um so it was great the downsides of it though were also present you know it's um it is difficult to ask somebody to live in a bit of a you do find that you after a while i felt like i was kind of performing artistness you know being there in that community of artists so that's was something definitely to like be aware of how so about performing artistness because like you're around this community you, you're this it's that thing a funny thing about a studio like going to the studio to make work so living in the live workspace but in order to do that you have to be an artist so you have this kind of you know there's also that dialogue with like um artists often being the first people into into these kind of industrial spaces that you know 10 years later they've got lovely cafes on and things you know so like if you go to that area now they've put up loads of flats all along that part of the a12 and it's like they're making bromby by boat a destination like and that's it just seems nuts to do that you don't have any of the infrastructure there to support that level of kind of community that they're trying to put into the place anyway but um I think you end up kind of performing artistness because you're in this place where you think I'm here because I'm an artist and what do artists do? And that's something that you have to sort of combat because I think that that's a really unhelpful way of making because you just you're just being a cliche. You know. So I don't know, I feel quite emotional about it in a funny sort of way because I look back on that time now, it's only a year ago, and I remember thinking, like, I didn't think it was going to last that long in a funny way. Like, the five years seemed to go quite quick, but at points they seemed to drag as well. Is there anything that you would like to ask me or um, is there anything that you thought we would talk about in this conversation that we haven't talked about? Or is there anything that you just want to say? Well, actually, I kind of am interested in, like, what you think about this whole presence stuff, you know? Yeah. How has your presence kind of changed? Like, like from what we've spoken about, like, you've been in this really... Like, this time has been so, um, like, topsy-turvy for you. And I just wonder how... How are you getting on with that, you know? Because, like, it's that conversation we're having about presence and about being there and... Like, it's one thing to do that not in Corona and when you haven't got all of this stuff happening, but to do it in Corona in a time where everything then becomes so, like, purposeful and so self-aware of every move that you're making and every decision and every walk and every coffee and every thing that you do in the studio and every loaf of bread that you buy. How are you kind of dealing with this new path under this massive microscope? Yeah. Woo. Um. <laughs> hmm. You know, my skin started breaking out. <laughs> um, and I, I think I'm just one of these people that my skin just like breaks out. Mm. 
But then I have these glorious chunks of time where I don't break out at all. And then I'm like, maybe this is it. Like, maybe this is it for the rest of my life. And then it, something changes. And, um, and I swear it really was like um, when I went to the RA and I had a year where I didn't have to worry about money, mm. my hair grew, my skin cleared up. And I realized how much money stresses me out. And um, so when I started school, truly like fucking not a fucking mark on my face. And um, so it's funny to see my stress, like see the physical effect of starting this new life under these less than ideal conditions. And I'm one of these people that I think tries to like enforce my will on the world. (laughs) I try to like move things forward, you know? Um, And so it's just interesting seeing the like collective weight of all that stress and feeling of failure, like on my face. And then it getting worse because as soon as you start trying to fucking like get make it better and you try different face products and your face freaks out and so it's like you can see not only your need to control something but your inability to control something um and the physical effect it's having on you even though on a day-to-day basis you're like I'm fine everything is fine everything is totally fine like your face (laughs) is like I'm fucking freaking out right now so so it's really quite interesting to like see it on my face hang in there do you know what I mean like it is going to get so much better it's going to be like fucking euphoric when things start to gradually like the oil starts to move around the system you know and like the whole thing starts to warm up again and I do think that this time especially if you're in education at this time like you'll have such a unique but also an undescribable experience of learning you know because you really have got to be so independent at this time to really drive your work forward and the the kind of skills that you learn through doing that which are sort of the things that perhaps aren't really kind of focused on in the course but those kind of skills that's so valuable like that's such a strong foundation for you know tangible things that you can draw on later in life I know it's not you know what you signed up for but I think that it's still something you know yeah 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 definitely Kelly I've really enjoyed this you've you've really it's it's um it's it's so I want to say gift but it's not really a good enough word it's such a a precious thing to be able to have this level of a conversation with someone you know who is thinking about these things and doing something about them so thank you for thank you for talking to me and thank you for asking me to be part of it uh yeah definitely you said so many important things that I think are like really important and relevant and like you know and so anyways it's this thing that I feel really lucky to be able to do and um yeah lucky to be able to talk to you so my pleasure Epilogue. On the 13th of January, Leah wrote to me. Since this podcast, Leah undertook a month-long residency at the British School of Rome with new contemporaries to research the male heroic body through sculpture in Western antiquity, 
to better understand toxic masculinity in 2022. She has also been awarded the Arts Council Develop Your Creative Practice Grant for a studio build in her garden, which she is currently undertaking. She has also just got a puppy who she hopes will grow up to be a thoughtful studio buddy. If you are interested in hearing more excerpts from conversations I've had with people in the arts over the years, head over to the website, thisthingwecallart.com. This podcast was funded by the Arts Council England, ArtQuest, the Gain Trust, and Tilla Studios. If you would like to help make the next season of this podcast a reality, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on iTunes, becoming a Patreon member, or donating through the PayPal link on the project's website. The logo was designed by Eva Duerden. The episode artwork was created by Fiona Riley, and the theme song was made by Alessandra Moroni. This podcast was produced by me, your host, Kelly Lloyd. Thanks so much for listening, and tune in next week for my conversation with a London-based artist who would like to remain anonymous.